I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right, welcome back uh, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Have a fun one for you today. I, I, I met Sean, I guess, about a year ago. So Sean, uh, Sean Morrison is the CEO of Diversified Royalty Group. He developed the concept of Top Line Royalty, uh, top line royalty Fund in 1998. has 20 years experience working with some of uh, Canada's largest uh, multi-location operators, franchisors. And uh, he's also director and shareholder of Maxim Capital Management. Previously was a partner at Capital West Partners, which was a uh, Vancouver-based investment banking firm, and was selected by Business in Vancouver as one of Vancouver's top 40 under 40 in 2007. You were you, you were probably 39, right? So, 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 so I don't want to age you. And uh, Sean was also selected, which I thought I thought was pretty interesting, in 2008 as a member of a nine-person economic advisory council that provided expert advice to the BC government on maintaining. Uh, enhancing the province's uh, economic strength during the economic crisis. So I'm sure we'll get to that because that must have been a very interesting, awesome. uh, yeah. uh, a very interesting experience. But, but before we get there, Sean, and th- again, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, happy to be here. So, so Sean, I always like starting this podcast, you know, learning a little more about, you know, the childhood. You know, it, it tells me a lot about someone. It's amazing to me. You know, I speak to some of these successful entrepreneurs and. You know, they, they, they start in little towns in the middle of nowhere or they start, you know, overseas or they have some, some really interesting stories. So I, I'd love to hear kind of your origination story. Yeah, my origination story, I think uh, like uh, entrepreneurialism has kind of almost always been in my DNA. I don't even know why, because it's not like anybody in my family tree was really entrepreneurial or anything like that. So I think I had uh, most people that were kind of like me back in the day. I had a paper route at the province. So that was probably the most torturous job in the world, waking up at 5.30 in the morning, getting 35 papers when you have 37 houses to deliver papers to. <laughs> so I, I learned that big companies uh, didn't always get things right. And the little guy uh, had to hop on my bike and drive around. Uh, and where was this? Where, where did you grow up? Oh, this is in, uh, I grew up in North Vancouver. Anyways, it was, uh, it was, it was the province versus the, the Vancouver Sun. It was a smaller newspaper. So I had to traverse over a huge area to deliver these uh, papers and then having to go out uh, at night and collect like $5 a, a month from our my clients. And then, so that gave you the ability to knock on the door. It's kind of cold calling a bit. You're asking for money. And then you actually have some customers that say, hey, listen, I don't have the five bucks, come back tomorrow. <laughs> and, and literally I'm a 12 year old kid. So that's kind of my first kind of experience of kind of just uh, getting out there in the world and doing some business. Uh, I remember I used to, um, ref hockey games and um, did um, all sorts of like yard work around the neighborhoods for for money. And um, and my first kind of real job was a pizza delivery driver for uh, Boston Pizza. And that, that actually will tie into that uh, nine member um, council thing that we can talk about a bit later. So I was kind of always on the go doing things. Then I got my CA degree from, you got accounting degree from UBC. University of British Columbia, then got my seat, chartered accounting designation, knew that, that had, I had no interest in that whatsoever. I was the first person to leave the Deloitte at the time uh, in my kind of uh, CA year to get out to, in the business. And I, I got to work with a small venture capital firm. 
right? And I, this is kind of interesting too. So I, I go up for this job and I'm basically making my best pitch. And the guy looks at me and it was to be the CFO of some kind of a very kind of smallish uh, merchant bank. And the guy looked at me and he goes, you don't want this job, do you? And I said, I have no interest in being the CFO of your company, but I have the skills to do it. I want to get into this business. I'll be a great CFO for a couple of years, but I want to be more involved in the financing side. And then it was funny that we finished the interview and a couple of days later, I ended up getting the job. And it was funny, a year later, he goes, I just made you wait for a couple of days to try to Aisha. At least, again, being more forthright, most people wouldn't say they don't want the job they're applying for. And I kind of basically just... uh, Tell it like it is. So I, I told the guy that, and I think that helped me get the job because talk to me about that transparency. You know, because I'm a I'm a massive believer believer in candid transparency. When yeah. someone says, comes to me and says like, you know, you know, how should I tell them this or what should I do? I'm like, just tell the fucking truth. Just like actually say what you mean. I don't know yeah. why it's so hard for people. Well, I, I think it's it's kind of like plastic surgery, right? You, you, it it kind of looks okay, but you can tell there's something off. And when you don't give the advice, that's kind of, if you give kind of the canned advice, it's kind of like trying to pretend that this is the right answer and it sounds right, but it doesn't feel right. And I find when you're candid with people, it might shock them initially, but then they know for the rest of their career with you that they're going to get the advice that you actually think versus the canned advice. And at the end of the day, uh, forthright advice, I think, is especially in your job being an investment banker. I used to be one, is really what people value because if you're trying to tippy toe around, you'll just never get to the finish line. You're not going to be a winner. You're just going to be kind of vanilla like the rest of the guys. But why do people have such a hard time? Like, in your opinion, you know, you've managed people, you've been around. Like, what what is it that that leads people to always feel like they have a tip tiptoe around? Is, is it is it just avoiding confrontation? Is it avoiding an uncomfortable situation, even though I find it more uncomfortable when they're not being honest, personally? I, I think uh, just most people are uh, uh, more conservative, so they don't want to say the wrong thing. So they'll try to say the right thing versus uh, if you the right thing is the right thing. So uh, I mean, there's right in terms of what I think the the party answer is. Um, and if you let people know what you really think, typically, if you're dealing with smart clients, which most of my clients end up being, they might be eccentric and stuff. But if you tell them the truth, they're usually pretty straightforward guys and they they respect that. Uh, and I think they, uh, if you're a yes man, uh, they usually are surrounded by yes men. So again, that's why I said when you when you kind of start talking to them, they're not used to it. But once they figure out that what you're saying actually makes sense and it's good to be if you're forthright and you don't make sense, you're doomed. <laughs> so if you're forthright and you're actually giving advice that actually hangs together and is consistent with everything else that's going on in the world and what you've said, then you build credi- credibility. I've, I've had partners that I've worked with that are super smart guys, but they're making up stories. And then when they, they can't remember what stories they've said, and then they're not forthright. And at the end of the day, uh, smart people can figure out the way to sec that, that your history of comments to me don't line up. Uh, whereas I'm kind of the opposite. I'm like a, a logic pure guy and combined with forthrightness uh, seems to work out pretty well for me. But it, 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 there's a bit of a shock value up front. But uh, in the long term, uh, people value advice that's uh, not sugarcoated. I totally agree. And people people value transparency. They they, do. You know, and again, I, I agree with you. It may shock them at first, but people, it's also memorable. You know, I use that as as, as a huge part of, of uh, you know, selling the firm is it's it's that memorability of yeah. people probably 
remember me because of the way I talk and the way I, I say things. And I do yeah. say things that most people wouldn't say. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing. No, no. If, 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 again, if you're forthright and you're smart and the story hangs together, you get absolute credibility. If you're forthright and maybe not as consistent as you need to be, then that can come back to bite in the ass. So as long as you're logical all the way through, uh, I, I believe it's a winning formula. Again, it kind of works for my personality. Some people don't have that personality, which is fine. And they find maybe being more conservative works. And with some clients, it does, quite frankly. And I'm sure I've lost some pitches where the guys just thought, oh, that guy's a little bit too forthright or just seems like a little bit too sure of himself. But at the end of the day, uh, maybe they're the type of people that don't feel comfortable around people like that and they can get the advice from somebody else. And I've always thought that uh, they can you always pick somebody else, not necessarily making the best decision, but uh, sometimes it's the best decision for their personalities and and that's fine. Literally appreciate the choir. Could not agree more <laughs> if I possibly tried. And you can't and you can't win every mandate anyway. So you want to make yeah. sure you have guys that actually like what you're pitching. 100 percent So before we jump from that CFO role to the next part of your career, one thing that you mentioned earlier was the the door knocking. You know, I, I, I've said it over and over again that I truly believe that the, one of the most important uh, experiences of my career was cold calling for two years. And, you know, I, I I'll tell that to, you know, to young people entering business, but the reality is that a lot of them in the digital first world, like don't have the opportunity to door knock that, that, that just doesn't exist like it used to. And cold calling is, is also, you know, not as as prevalent awesome. as it used to. So, so what do you think some of the ways that someone who's now entering, uh, you know, business can can hack that skill set? Because I do think it is super important to understand how to think on your feet, deal with rejection, deal with someone face to face. You know, there's so many key lessons that come from that. Yeah. So, I actually, in my quick intro, uh, I failed to probably miss the most important thing, uh, almost a defining moment of my career, and it was pretty young. Is I. I uh, I think in grade like 11 or 12, I worked as a student painter. So I was the guy up on the 30 foot ladders reaching over and potentially killing myself to make five bucks an hour. But the year after that, I ended up getting a a small franchise from one of the uh, student painting companies. And I remember, I think they took us down to Seattle for like a two day training session. And they literally taught you how to sell, right? Face-to-face selling. And it is awkward. It's like public speaking and stuff. So I remember that two day session and uh, I was at the right age and I was a little bit introverted at the time, let's say, again, not relative to most, but um, relative to the top guys. And then came out of there basically just pumped up. And uh, and basically, it's the most crude form of cold calling, literally dropping flyers at people's doors, knocking, like following up three days later and say, hey, listen, I dropped off a flyer and uh, my name's Sean Morrison, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I'm interested in I'm running the student painting franchise. It looks like your house needs a little bit of a touch up. We'd love to make a pitch for you. So um, I think that moment and, and that summer, I mean, you're hiring young kind of maybe unskilled people to do the painting. We got a crappy franchise. We're like the last franchise allocated for the lower mainland. So it was basically a giant make work project uh, and probably worked about 16 hours a day for the entire summer, probably would have made more money if I worked at McDonald's. That's how little we made in profit. But I did learn to have basically when you're selling, you're selling yourself. So you're not gonna you're not gonna door. It's not like I'm the best painter in the world. I can paint this the best. It's like uh, here's my backstory. Do you radiate positivity? Do they have? Do you inspire confidence? If you do, would they let you basically paint their house? And um, I think that skill, learning how to sell yourself, 
versus selling just the, a rudimentary commodity product. Uh, it was kind of the cold calling, door knocking exercise that I went through. In terms of answering your question, in terms of young people, you know, they're a little bit more afraid because of technology to communicate and it's just easier, right? It's easier to write a text than to phone a guy. Uh, and that's just life. I think that's human nature. So. Yeah, but you can't you can't inspire that confidence. You can't sell yourself in the same way. No, if no, you, if, no. If, if you miss all of the other components of of communication that aren't yeah. just text based. Yeah, well, te yeah, text based is two dimensional. Yeah, and uh, and when you're meeting, like, so this is kind of let's say two and a half dimensional, and in person is the best because you can you can feel a sense of positivity or like there's the law of attraction, right? Like either you're bringing something to the table or you're not. And if you enter the room and you have a conversation and people feel like you're bringing something to the table and you have a bit of a presence, then they're inspired and they can feel the confidence and they kind of get into it. And if you don't, you're kind of like a limp, a limp noodle. And if, that, if that's the case, then you're probably not going to inspire confidence and you're, you should probably have a different type of job. So for young people, I think it's to, even giving advice to my son is get a job where you talk to human beings. Right. If you're a busboy, then try to become a waiter, try to become a hostess, try to get a job where you talk to humans. So you don't just go be a laborer where you're schlepping around wood making 20 bucks an hour. Go somewhere where you're talking to human beings, you're making 15 bucks an hour because who cares what you make per hour today? It's talking to human beings is a skill. And uh, kids are turned into adults. And during that phase, they turn from introverted and awkward to whoever they are going to end up being. And I think that's the period where you want to be exposed to human beings, talking to them, awkward situations, minor sales pitches. Oh, would you like, you know, would you like a keg size that drink or like even just a little bit of a sales pitch? So um, I think that's all valuable and is more valuable than making a few extra bucks uh, schlepping wood around uh, on a, a job site. No, I agree. And, and, you know, I speak to some young folks that are like, oh, I'm going into engineering. I'm building products. Like I don't need to learn how to sell. And I'm like, you're, you need to sell yourself. If you're building yourself, you know, to your earlier point, like if you're building a career, I promise you self-promotion matters. Yes. Because it's not always the person who is the most skilled who gets no, the promotion. It's the person who is really good at selling themselves. Yeah. And so, so everyone has to be a salesperson. And if the least you do is sell yourself, you still have to sell. Yeah. And even if you're going on a date, it's a sales pitch, right? So learn sure. how to sell boys and girls. Yeah. I mean, with Tinder, maybe that, that that's, that's less. I tell you, the Tinder, you, you, you still have to have the first copy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, so let's, let's go back to the CFO role. You said it lasted a year. Take yeah. So I, I was, I, I was basically, I was literally, a, a CEO. I told the guy I wanted the job for a couple of years after a year, they promoted me to running some son of small kind of a tax shelter type of investment selling opportunity. So I, I developed a spreadsheet to figure out how to optimize somebody's tax re or tax um, efficiencies and use, I mean, that's where I kind of developed the, it's not just charisma. Like if you want to sell a used car, it's mostly charisma. It, it, I always wanted to be kind of the institutional salesperson versus the retail salesperson. And the institutional one has to have a fact-based sales pitch. And I, and I didn't even know this was what was happening, but with the benefit of hindsight, I developed this spreadsheet that kind of took into people's income levels and stuff like that and how much of this um, tax shelter product they should buy until they hit the AMT point. And where's the, we had this little uh, chart that optimized where they should, the optimal purchase, and then use that kind of um, fact based sales pitch to make the pitch in terms of the, discussing the product. And it was kind of that turned into, a, I was having huge success doing that. And then I got a job opportunity at a company called um, um, the mid-market investment banking firm called Capital West. 
uh, in like late October, uh, whatever year it was, I can't remember, like 1993, 94. And um, that's where I got offered a job to work at this investment banking firm. If I waited in like literally another six weeks, our kind of the LP tax shelter thing that I'd been working on all year would have closed. At that time, I would have made like a $500,000 commission. And, but if I took the investment banking job in late October, no, early November, I would have got no commission. And it was kind of like a defining moment because at that time, that was literally all the money in the world. I had to and basically pick the, I guess, in hindsight, I think the right decision. I went to the investment banking firm and built a different career, but I had to step away from you know a huge potential or not potential. It was a commission that was sitting there to be earned. But uh, in the short term, obviously, it was a, a huge economic hit. But long term, I was lucky enough to be in a, 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 the right firm in the right uh, city, which I wanted to be in, which was Vancouver. And that was kind of a, a big uh, career decision as well. And uh, don't regret that for a second. Yeah, I mean, stra- strategy, you know, I tell people strategy has to trump money. I mean, money, money comes when you're happy, when you're doing something that fulfills you. Yeah, but, you're good at it. Yeah. And, but if, when people work for money, I really think it's a really horrible motivator. Yeah, you just you just end up making bad decisions. I agree with you totally. I, I think you have to follow your passion, you know, and 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 something that like I use the word fulfillment. Like I really believe it's important to be fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, it was like, okay, well, I, I knew I didn't want to be in the tax shelter business for the long term. Uh, obviously, the commission would have been huge, but I knew investment banking was probably the area where I could use kind of my fact based sales pitch skills. Uh, to the maximum and and mostly dealing with uh, institutional uh, investors versus retail investors, which was the re- the the tax shelter was really selling to retail investors. And I thought this is almost like almost too easy. But at the end of the day, it's not really a challenge. It's more of a sales pitch. And they don't even though you've got the the logical sales pitch, they're not really understanding the logic part. It's more they just think it's a it's a good product. Whereas I knew that if I got into the investment banking game, I'd be dealing with more sophisticated investors. Kind of a a fair fight and a fair argument, but they'd also understand the sales pitch. And um, I think that uh, paid off in the long run. So so you're there, you're 93, 94, and I assume you leave in 98 to start Diversified? No, no. Uh, so I was an investment banker at Capital West. Uh, my first client was AW Food Services, which was great. We also advised, we went in and met with uh, Anthony Von Mandel, who was literally launching Mike's Hard Lemonade the week we pitched him. So got exposed to a bunch of kind of high quality, kind of mid-market companies, private companies in Vancouver. I was just the young guy, so I wasn't bringing any of this business in. In 98, um, in 97, I helped a guy named David Eisenstadt buy the keg restaurant chain. I was his primary advisor. We, I raised the capital. He was able to buy it with no money down, uh, which was uh, obviously uh, insane in hindsight. A uh, great outcome for him and just uh, kind of a client for life for me. And then... Um, and what happened? Yeah. So then in 98, I invented the idea of a top line royalty fund because the income trust market was kind of on fire. And uh, I knew AW, I knew the keg, and I knew Collier's International was another client of mine. And so, super high them, level, will you explain to people what the concept is? Because I, and yeah. I know it's going to be difficult in a lot of detail. I've said it so many times, I've kind of boiled it down pretty good. So, if you have a business with 100 locations and you're making uh, a 10 million bucks, uh, if you want a big liquidity event, you either have to sell that business, so you might get 100 million and you have to sell the entire business and the equity upside to somebody else. I saw these franchisor businesses as, well, they've been around for 30 years. You've got 100 stores. you got definitely growth prospects to open another 100 to 200 stores. Who would sell that business today? 
So I came up with, I, I thought that we could sell a royalty on the existing hundred stores and have the franchisor pay a royalty to the public market on those hundred stores, keep the equity in their business. And as they grew from hundred stores to 300 stores, the owners of the business would be able to keep that upside and sell incremental royalties on those new stores when they're open to the public market. And uh, I made the pitch in 1998, I call it the Franchise Income Trust. It was the idea was to put A&W, A&W Keg and Callers International on one person. They're all about 9 million of EBITDA, so too small to kind of do a, a, a public company themselves. But together, I thought the Franchise Income Trust would just be a great name and a great product. Made the pitch to the different investors. The, the, the Collier's business wasn't really a good fit for the income trust. The income trust market kind of cooled off. So that idea kind of went dormant. In 2002, AW launched uh, the, uh, the AW royalty, top line royalty fund. And um, I'd actually made that pitch to the guys. And they were the one guys who said, why would, why would I ever do that? And sure enough, four years later, they do it. And as an investment banker, you probably made a bunch of pitches where they've taken your advice and gone and used somebody else. And you're just like, okay, well, and this was a truly unique idea. So this wasn't like, oh, we can go raise private equity money for your business and they pick somebody else that's life. This was like literally a, an idea that had never been done before. So they said it was a terrible idea in 98. In 2002, they actually did it. I saw the prospectus came out. I felt ill for about 10 minutes. I wanted to lose my mind. And then uh, 10 minutes later, I, I remembered that I made the same pitch to David Eisenstadt of the keg. So I phoned him up and I said, David, it's like having your cake and eating it too. And I remember the idea I pitched it four years ago. I said, it's game on. NW just filed a prospectus, got hired by the keg the next day. They did an income trust uh, a month after the guys at NW uh, did. And then Boston Pizza ended up copying the same thing a, a month later. So each one of the owners of those businesses were thinking about a giant liquidity event. They probably would have sold control of or 100% of their business. And all of them have got about three or four times their original investment by keeping the upside through this royalty structure. Yeah. And then the last point on that was I used that pitch or that structure after helping uh, those guys come up with the idea in 2002. I actually pitched Chip Wilson at Lululemon who had a franchise, he actually had some franchise stores. He obviously had some corporate stores. His economics were ridiculous. And I actually pitched him on the royalty structure uh, for his business. And uh, at the end of the day, and it, it, and it helped me uh, get hired as an investment banker for Lululemon, which ultimately led to uh, a private equity transaction. Because in his case, his business needed help. Whereas A&W Keg on Boston Pizza Row, our business has been around 35 years. They didn't need help. So the royalty structure uh, actually uh, resulted in the best outcome for them and Chip's uh, outcome for doing a private equity deal, which led to an IPO has obviously worked out well for Lululemon as well. So, so when did Diversified Royalty Group really get started? Yeah, so I got uh, so I left uh, investment banking in 2008. I think uh, we raised our private we raised a private equity fund in 2008, uh, just before the world economics uh, whole world blew up from a financial perspective. And at the end of that fund, uh, we raised 100 million bucks in July 2008. In July 2013, I was approached by a public company called Benev Capital, and it was a public company with 70 million bucks of cash, 30 million of tax losses, no operating business, and they've been looking for an operating business for the last two years. And every deal that came to the uh, board was either supported by one large shareholder and opposed by the other, or vice versa. So it was basically a, a, a Mexican standoff for for years. 
Um, they wanted me to come in and see if I could help put something together. They really wanted me, to, they wanted a, a kind of an investment banking sales pitch guy, private equity background to come in and run the company, go find a company, roll it in, and, and then basically walk away and let whoever managed that company run it, run the public company. So I basically, I went to the board and said, well, I, you know, I, I invented this really cool idea in 98 called the Franchise Income Trust. Uh, and W Keg and Boston Pizza ended up using that royalty structure in 2002 to go public. And uh, it's been 10, 11, 12 years. And it's been a great outcome for investors and a great outcome for owners. I said, I'd like to take the 70 million bucks of cash you have on your balance sheet. And I'd like to run this type of business. I'd rather, I'd like to start up something called Diversified Royalty Corp, put together a, a group of franchise or businesses and see if I can put together the original idea of the Franchise Income Trust. And uh, so I got the mandate. I met the two both big shareholders. One was uh, actually just happened to be involved in the keg transaction 15 years earlier. The other one was more of a metal bending and bashing guy. I walked him through it and he looked at me and it was kind of like that sales pitch. I was talking about foot to Toronto, met the guy and I walked him and his young guy through it. And the young guy looks at he points at me, we, we can't do this because <laughs> they like to invest in tangible book value type companies. And, one of their questions was, what's the tangible book value of this? And I went, zero. But that doesn't mean the, tan the value of it's not ex uh, high and explain the royalty structure and buying the trademarks. And the, the guy who ran the fund leaned over to his young guy and said, this is a good idea. So I had the kind of the mandate from the two big shareholders. And then about a year later, we, we wrapped up our first uh, top line royalty deal. And uh, we had a, had to fight off Mike Weckley and a couple other uh, hostile takeovers along the way, people trying to grab the cash. Uh, we got through all that and we launched Diversified Royalty Corp with a single royalty in uh, September 2014 and have built a business since then. That's great. Great story. So, so one of the things we spoke about earlier was 2008 being uh, selected as a member of the nine-person advisory council. And you said it connected to Boston Pizza. Yeah. So yeah, let's so make that connection. I'd love to hear about that, that experience. Yeah, it was ridiculous. So I'm a pizza delivery boy uh, in uh, 1990. I was a grad 80s. So it was probably 1990, 1986. Pizza boy to uh, that thing in uh, 2009. So obviously the world was going through a financial meltdown. The BC government had said, we're never going to run a deficit, yada, yada. Things were great. They, uh, a guy named David Everson that I had advised when he was at Camfor and BC Ferries was putting together this eight-person committee. I got nominated by a couple of business guys. Uh, they liked what I brought to the table as a young guy then. Anyways, I joined this group and there was a guy named George Melville who was one of the eight uh, people on this committee. And uh, George was a co-founder of uh, Boston Pizza. And um, he didn't know that I invented the top-line royalty structure and all this stuff. So I was a CA by training and he was a CA and we kind of thought the same. So uh, during this, the, we were meeting with all these people in government and cabinet, and and we were supposed to put together our views and present them to cabinet. And I was a pretty active member of the of the group. I remember halfway through, I met. I was just a side chat with George, and he goes, "Oh yeah, what's your background?" I said, "Well, I gave him a quick a little a little uh, spiel," and I said, "But the most interesting thing is, I my first job was a pizza delivery boy at Boston Pizza and Marine Drive in North Vancouver." And he goes. I knew there was something about you I liked. <laughs> so uh, that actually ended up uh, paying off. We, we've been good friends ever since. He's the biggest shareholder in, a, in Mr. Lube, which we ended up doing a top line royalty deal with. 
So they liked the top line royalty deal with Cross and Pizza so much that he was. They decided to do a, a top line royalty deal with us uh, and diversified for Mr. Lube, and that's worked out well for them and for us. So dealing with the government in 2008, what are like what are some of the lessons you learned? Because I think that most people when they when they hear about governments, like, oh, these guys don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, they're, 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 they're inefficient. I would just imagine myself smacking my head against the wall. But yeah. uh, you know, what, what was it really like? Yeah, no, it's good. Um, I mean, uh, it's interesting because I mean, you see all these politicians, and and you just they just by the time they get to the top, you just they, they're kind of it's easy to throw pot shots at them, and because I mean everybody's got their own little idiosyncrasies, and we all look a bit awkward in front of the camera, so we all easy, easy to give shots at everybody. Um, but I, I remember just meeting, and I had the same kind of mindset as you. I'm like, oh, government's the most inefficient thing in the world. You can't hire anybody to do anybody good because who'd want to work in that environment? I was actually stunned by the quality of the people that were kind of under the premier that were working because they all they had about eight people come in. We had a bunch of meetings over a two or three month session, and uh, you could tell they're smart. Like they weren't getting paid, but they were actually highly capable, smart. They were they were actually it was the whole thing was really uh, it didn't make sense to me, but uh, thankfully it was it was all like a rational conversation. I would say the eight people that were trying to advise were were less skilled than the people that were, were pitching us. And it was uh, the whole, I think humans try to stick to what they believe, even if they get other data points, they just want to stick to the status quo. Confirmation bias, right? Yeah, so much. And then, so I'd, I'd, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a keener. So I, I started reading tons of stuff about past recessions. And, you know, in the 30s, when the recession came, the government clamped down. And it was almost like a death spiral because the, the business community is clamping down and then the government's clamping down and it's a death spiral. It just starts augering into zero. It's like, and, and that obviously didn't work. The 30s was a disaster. And um, the idea that the government was saying that we can't run a deficit was a nice uh, sales pitch to be in power and saying that this were friskily prudent and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, when things are starting to auger in in the private sector, if government jumps on and they panic and auger in, it creates the death spiral. So a government does have the ability to get the fire hose out and start spraying money around. So um, running a deficit does make sense. Now, at the end of the day, where you deploy the capital and does it go to the right hands and is there corruption and all these other things are all different points. Uh, the decision to deploy capital into the economy is the right one. The tough part is to figure out how to get that in the right spot. We weren't being asked where to allocate it all. I mean, that takes um, a million things. And the problem, the challenge with government is this: they have so many constitu consti constituents to, to deal with that it's, uh, it's, it's an impossible job, right? Like, oh, so has the government gone too far in the last two years in terms of spraying the fire hose? Yeah, uh, I mean, I would say that if they didn't spray the fire hose, it would have been doomed. Uh, did they overspray? Of course, because it's not their money. Who wouldn't overspray? <laughs> uh, it's easy to spend other people's money and the fire hose and accountability and fraud and people applying for loans that they don't need or don't deserve and they're not going to pay back or it's fraudulent. Like that's the like I think the idea to put money in and help the landlords out and help the small businesses out and help the payrolls out all makes sense. I think they probably doubled the amount of money into the system than they needed to if it was all perfectly managed. But then if you think about it, this was a once in a hundred year in a, in a situation. You got a bunch of just normal people, right? Like Trudeau is just, a, it was just a high school teacher 15 years ago, right? These are just normal people. Actually, one of the directors of, uh, of 
of a diversified royalty corp, uh, Anita Anand, uh, was our direct, a director for six months. She decided to run for government, got uh, one her riding in, in Ontario, had to step down from the board of DIV. She was a professor at uh, U of T, just a regular person. She wins that case or wins that wins her uh, riding. She becomes basically the head of procurement, which is probably a nothing job in a normal time. She ends up being the head of procurement when COVID hits. So she had to procure like all the vaccines. When every single human on earth wants a vaccine, you're trying to buy something in that market. So these are normal people with normal skills, unprepared for anything like this. And we're asking them to make great decisions. I just think it's totally naive. It's easy to take pot shots at, but I mean... Can you imagine trying to back, buy a vaccine with the U.S. trying to buy a vaccine in the U.K.? Yeah, no, no one, was, no one was prepared. Oh, okay. yes. But I mean, uh, I think putting money into the system was the right decision. I think they're overly generous. Uh, but again, when it's other people's money, um, it was easy and the right decision for them. Because no matter how much money you put into the system, the people that need it are going to keep screaming for more anyways. And uh, ultimately, uh, we're all going to have to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been very spoiled over the last decade. Where where do you think we're headed? Because I I I don't think it's anywhere good anytime soon. Like or I don't think it's any anywhere good in 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 a time frame that is sooner than than we would expect. Yeah, uh, this, and I'm I'm kind of a being I still even an entrepreneurial background and stuff. I still have a CA uh, DNA in me. And I remember uh, one of my mentors, uh, the guy who kind of was the head of Capital West, a guy named Fred Wright, and uh, he he just made this one comment that's kind of stuck with me is never doubt the ingenuity of the human ecosystem. Like there's always new Lululemons, there's always new Googles, there's always there's always new businesses that are coming in to replace the old ones and we'll have good business models and we'll win the day and, and create huge value. Um, there will always be the, the hucksters with these crappy business models, tons of hype. And I just think there's always opportunities in the world. Will, it, will there be some bloodshed in the street for people that are over leveraged? Uh, I think at some time in this lifetime, people with over leverage should be punished. They've never been, and at least in most of my lifetime. Uh, I think there will be a, a bubble burst there somewhere eventually. But again, it's almost like it's kind of like the the banks in the States is almost too big to fail. So do we end up all having to backfill for these people that have over levered uh, for the conservative people like uh, maybe myself that have maybe done the right thing? Do we end up paying for their over leverage anyway? So uh, I think you're you're right that there's uh, lots to be concerned about, but I just remember Fred saying that there's never doubt the the human race. Like uh, we're resilient, and again, if we all have 25% less money in our bank account, we find a way to get through. And do we all need a, a, a fancy brand new Tesla? Probably not. <laughs> so I, I wish I was as optimistic about the human race. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's but there's also by definition there's all sorts of chaos everywhere too. But at the end of the day, they'll uh, we all find a way to get through. Yeah, until we don't. Let's see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, Sean, really appreciate your time. You know, that was yeah, really no interesting. And uh, you know, for those that you know, would like to follow along with uh, what you're up to or even reach out if they have a multi-location business they'd like to discuss, uh, you know, whether selling royalty stream makes sense for them. What's the best way that they can do that? Yeah. So I, we run a public company called Diversified Royalty Corp, small shop. Uh, you can look, look us up online. If you have a question about our business or have an opportunity, uh, we take calls from anybody and everybody. We don't discriminate. So 
Uh, if you check out the website, you'll, you'll see our contact information. And there's either myself or my CFO, Greg Annis, that are uh, We'd be happy to talk to anybody again, anywhere from a small investor that might be looking to deploy some capital in, in a share like ours or to somebody with a, a franchise business or an investment banker or anybody who just likes to have a, an interesting conversation. Be happy to talk to anybody. Awesome. Well, again, Sean, thank you very much. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on a deal maker's DNA where you can expect the unexpected.